Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who has a vast collection of vintage DC and Marvel comic books, and ironically lives in Minnesota, where his favorite NBA team, the LA Lakers, originated, Dave Denniston. Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I have the pleasure of having here with me today a physician who has been investing in real estate for 10 plus years in single family homes and commercial re- spaces and apartments and self-storage and manufactured home parks. She has invested in over 2,500 units across six properties and two funds. She is a very busy person that practices in the San Diego area and is the chief physician officer for her medical group. And uh, of course, in this segment, we're going to talk a bit about her journey, her joys, her struggles in this physician fireside chat. Please help me welcome Vanessa Peters to the show. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. And and before this chat, we were talking, we're recording this in early April of 2020. And um, definitely a lot of crazy things happening out in the world with with COVID and the coronavirus and, and um, changes we're all making. Um, to our daily lives, and we'd love to get some some thoughts from you early on that before we we kind of dive into your journey and what that's been like. How's how's the the virus been treating you and your practice? Yeah, the COVID epidemic has impacted everyone, but especially those who work in healthcare. We um, had a shelter in place order put into effect on March twelfth which is great, mm-hmm. and uh, caught us a little off guard, however, and realized that we would need to take this very seriously. Um, the day before that shelter-in-place order went went out, I still thought I was going to Austin for a women's retreat the following week. Oh, wow. And that really, obviously, um, I was like, wow, okay, this is serious. Um, I canceled my flight. I had the whole week off the following week from work, um, which, which was fortuitous because I – um, was able to come back to work and work full time in a um, in an administrative role, which is what I do part of the time. But normally I'm packed with patients as well. So I uh, got right to work figuring out the operations of an outpatient medical clinic without any telemedicine capability. Crazy. And so we um, we picked a you know a platform, worked through the operations of how this was going to work, and of course the news is just like changing every day. Oh, you know, all of a sudden they've relaxed the rules on telehealth and yes, we can get paid and, you know, we can charge the same as a face-to-face visit. And so there was a lot of, um, of work to get that up and running. Um, you know, I thought it would just take a few days, but uh, that was my naivete regarding um, operations of you know, involving different areas of a, of a clinic. And so um, after a week we had it up and running. And so I'm, I'm proud to say that we are doing that and we are committed to 75% telemedicine visits and having uh, very few patients come in um, live and so we can reduce the virus. And that, of course, affects our pay um, because yes. we get paid for seeing patients. And when we're canceling all of the seniors' physicals, all of their Medicare annual wellness visits that we've been pushing on and things like that, it's been really, it's been really difficult for the clinic. Um, we did have to decide to furlough some of our support staff 
Mm. hopefully temporarily, but um, it looks like this is going to be going through the end of May um, at least. So, but we're, but what I'm excited about is that we are um, embracing new technology and yeah. I, you know, med medicine has really been a little behind when it comes to technology. Uh, there's a lot of good reasons for that. You know, there's uh, HIPAA compliance and patient care and people's lives are at stake here. This isn't just, you know, um, social media type stuff. So we have to take it seriously, but I feel like this was a real push that um, CMS and Medicare needed to allow us to try it and get paid for it. Because up until now, very few people have been doing telehealth and they've been doing it on a cash basis. So um, for the occasional patient who calls in after hours who has a UTI or cold or something like that. But this is on a much larger scale. And I am hopeful that this is going to change the face of medicine for the future. And I'm excited to embrace the new technology out of the um, in my group have never used a Zoom before any kind of video conference and now we're forced into it. <laughs> and it's like we, we have a new um, platform, Microsoft Teams, and it's like, okay, everybody jump on because if you want to attend a meeting, this is the only way. And, um, and so in, in a lot of ways, there's some exciting things going on. And um, hoping that here in California, we flatten the curve enough that we don't have the horrible things that are happening on the East Coast in New York and New Jersey right now. But only time will tell, and we are prepared. And um, those of us in the outpatient world are prepared to be reserved for the hospital, you know, should the need arise. I was talking to a physician earlier in Chicago, and they said that their system out there is on a level two. And he's a neurologist. And so if they get to level three, that's when all hands are on deck at right. his hospital, which is University of Chicago. So it's going to be interesting to, to see where this goes. But let's, uh, let's go back to the past a little bit, Vanessa. I'd love to hear about uh, you and how you grew up and um, what, what that environment was like. Did, did you always want to be a doctor growing up? Tell me mm -hmm. about that. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm Canadian. I uh, was born in um, Nova Scotia, Canada, um, on the East Coast, uh, but moved over to Alberta on the west side of the, of the country when I was very young. So I would say I grew up on the west side of Canada in British Columbia and uh, Alberta um, and grew up in a very small town. It was actually a coal mining town that mm. was brand new. The town was created because they found coal. And so uh, it was it was a fun time as a kid, you know, moving there in first, second grade. And um, all the houses were brand new and um, built for the for the coal miners, for all the employees. My stepfather was a foreman. So mm. um, all the houses, there was only four layouts. And, you know, when you mirror those, that means there's eight. So there's eight different houses in the whole town. And uh, you'd go over to your friend's house and You'd be like, hey, this is my house, but backwards. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow. Everything was shiny and new. Um, and so I had a pretty idyllic time there. You know, we just roamed around and did whatever we wanted. We'd come home and, the, you know, the sun went down for dinner. So I really, you know, cherished the, the ability that I had to have freedom when I was young, growing mm -hmm. up. And, and um, go ahead. I was going to say, and so when, when did medicine or the thought of medicine enter into the picture? Well, um, I was always, um, you know, an overachiever in school, kind of the, the nerdy kid who loved to read. And um, so I always, you know, did very well in school. When I was, actually, we moved to um, Alberta um, near Banff um, in 10th grade. And my teachers then were, you know, I was doing a lot of biology classes, you know, the advanced um, AP type classes. And that was when I really started to love the science 
and you know I felt that I would you know want to choose a career based on that probably um, but you know things were so limited back then I didn't know any entrepreneurs um, everybody kind of had a, a job you know a w, mm -hmm. well they call them w2s down here up there something else but um, I didn't really think that there was anything else that I would do except go to school and get get a good job so uh, I thought well you know I'm pretty clever. I'll, I'll go into medicine. That seems like a good solid job. And uh, law was the other option I thought of, but I thought that sounded kind of boring. So <laughs> I, chose, I chose medicine. Um, and I, and I love the idea of science and helping people and all that kind of stuff. But really the, the big thing I think was that I wanted security. So um, it scared me to see my friends going into, um, you know, talking about doing business major or um, communications or political science. I'm like, what is that? What is like, what do you do when you get out of that? I, I didn't, it, for me, um, I think I'm a bit of a planner. Um, I am. And I need to know way ahead of time what I'm going to do to get to where I'm going. What's, what's the A to B path here? And so medicine was right up my alley in that regard because I could plan my way into that. I could pick right from the beginning what kind of courses I wanted to take to get into pre-med, to get into medicine, to get into, you know, the specialty or whatever that I wanted. So that was very appealing to me to come out of school with a job title. And, um, and you know, of course, um, it's, it's a noble profession, you know, and it pays well. And um, one thing that I thought was that I could become a doctor and not have a boss. <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to be the boss. Um, but that's just not the way it is in the real world. Um, the Canadian men, the Canadian healthcare system is is very different. Mm -hmm. So um, as many people know, it's um, more of a socialized medicine, and there are still lots of doctors who are small group, and they are the bosses. Um, the government is the payer. So mm -hmm. whereas we have our Blue Cross, Blue Shields, and anthems and such that pay us, well, the government pays the doctors up there. So. You can be um, a small office and be technically um, self-employed or um, like that. But down here, when I moved to the U.S., um, I realized that I would have a boss. And while we are a physician-owned group, it's not the same. <laughs> you still have to abide by the rules of the group. So, um, yeah, that was that was sort of my path to getting into medicine. So I want to go back to what, what you were saying earlier about your stepfather being a foreman. Mm -hmm. and growing growing up that way what kind of of lessons around money good or bad yeah. you know were, were you learning growing up and i'm sure what was a what, what at least i would normally think would be a middle middle class or, or even lower middle class mm -hmm. kind of of profession right yeah i think um my personal belief is that behaviors and thoughts around money are somewhat um nature you know meaning that you're kind of born with a certain temperament when it comes to your money um, and then there's of course the environment or nurture that trains you in certain ways so i was definitely a frugal kid by nature mm. um, and always saving up money and hesitant to buy things um, i remember you know for example my brother is four years younger than me and we would both get a dollar to go to the corner store and get like a candy bar and, you know, I would, <laughs> I would look for the one with the largest number of grams, you know, because that was going to be the best value. So I would get the, the Mr. Big or whatever. And, um, and then I would eat it really slowly to savor it. And my brother would just like, 
gobble those up in two seconds and be like, want mine? And I'd be like, no, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we were in the same household, but we definitely had different perspectives on, on money. Yeah. And um, my stepfather was um, someone who taught me about money in terms of frugality as well. Um, you know, unfortunately, um, our parents do things that may not match up with their words. And unfortunately, he was a spender. Um, and he would buy things, um, but then he would preach the frugality and, and um, hmm. for example, give us an allowance and then we would need to purchase our own school clothes, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, or make us do chores around the house to earn money and things like that. So I feel like um, there was definitely a, a work ethic instilled in me from that, but things weren't free. You had to work for them and you weren't going to just be given things. Um, but he had, you know, his faults, of course, as well, um, which confused me as a kid for sure seeing him buy himself for example an expensive camera or a, mm. uh, a bicycle or something like that but you know I couldn't have those things but but having said that it was a very homogenous society that I grew up in so pretty much everybody was white and middle class um, uh, the the um, the coal mine provided a pretty stable salary for almost everybody so there wasn't a large variation in what people earned there wasn't rich and poor um, mm. And so that was sort of interesting that I didn't note the classes. There was, um, you know, the um, Aboriginal people were the people that I would notice that were poorer, you know, because hmm. they, they, they seemed to be, um, they lived in different places and that kind of stuff. But other than that, it was interesting looking back how everybody was very much the same. That is so, so fascinating just how, how that, that came about and not a, not a whole lot of differences, although you certainly did, did see some and, um, I was a, as you talked about coal mining, you know, I was wondering how much I think about coal mining. I think about health concerns and, and lung issues mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that, that mm -hmm. can happen. How much was, was that an influence on, on wanting to become a physician? Yeah, good question. You know, the, um, the mine was far enough away from our town, which was way Northern British Columbia near, um, close to Alaska actually. And so the air up there was super clean and there was no pollution at all. Um, I think whatever pollution the, the mine put out was uh, pretty minuscule compared to the unpopulated area that it was in. Um, but my, my stepfather would show me pictures of um, when he used to work in a mine in another place that was underground and the people coming up all you know, uh, black and yes. covered in soot. And, yes. you know, he would describe to me the lung issues that would come along with it. Um, I think that was something that I probably shelved away in the back of my mind, but I wouldn't say that it was uh, something that motivated me to get into medicine. Interesting. Huh. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. And um, I would love to, to move forward a little bit here. So you went, did your medical school in Canada. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah, was in, that? Cal in Calgary, Alberta. How does that work with medical school there? Is it obscenely expensive like it is here in the U.S. or is it more subsidized and it's not as expensive in Canada? Yeah, it, um, it is subsidized quite heavily. I, um, I think it was about $5,000 a year to go to school. Oh, my gosh. And um, it might have even been $4,000 um, or, or around there. And that was for undergrad, but even medical school was the same. And... So I didn't live on campus, um, and I really should have been able to get out of school really well, especially considering how frugal I was, but um, I didn't. <laughs> uh, the first year of medical school, the, uh, the Scotiabank, that's the, one of the local banks, uh, offered all the medical students um, a line of credit 
And I think they offered me $120,000 line of credit. And, and I took them up on that. So that was a mistake. I, mm. um, I was uh, with a partner who I married shortly before medical school. Uh, we're divorced now, but he was working and we had an apartment and uh, probably could have made ends meet without the line of credit, but um, it was against my better judgment and my nature, but I did uh, rack up quite a bit on that line of credit. So when I exited school, I had a moderate amount of debt, but nothing compared to what the, the people down here accumulate during medical school and residency. Is there any, because you're, you are having it subsidized, is there any sort of like requirement? Like you, you need to start your career in Canada, you know, for a certain number of years, kind of like an army, or is it just, okay, yeah, you can go anywhere you want. You know, what, what was that like? Right. There are no requirements for staying. Um, if you um, go to a rural underserved location to serve your initial years out of school, then you can get some help with loan repayment, similar to here. Hmm. Um, but there's no requirements that you have to stay. They call it the brain drain, you know, because it is more attractive down here to make more money. I should, we should have the kids go to medical school in Canada. We well, do. let me tell you, I have a son and he is a Canadian citizen because uh, just by fact that I am Canadian, I filed his paperwork. And so I got his little citizenship card in the mail and I've, he's only nine, but I've told him, you're going to go to school in Canada. Because <laughs> it is still only $5,000 a year up there. Oh, that's insane. I know. And this is 20. I have my 20th medical school reunion here coming up in October. And so, um, of course, he doesn't have any interest in, in you know, university or, or college at this time. <laughs> but he's like, I'm not going up there. I'm like, we'll see. <laughs> we'll find out, young man. All right. So, um, Tell me about residency then. Did you do residency in Canada? Yeah, I actually did my residency in Saskatchewan. That is the next province to the east from Alberta. So um, that's considered the prairies. It's flat and boring as far as the eye can see. Uh, lots of farmland. Montana. <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah, exactly. And so you do your residency there. And then mm -hmm. did you start practicing in Canada? Or did you then come down to the States? Or what happened yeah, after residency? Yeah, so um, the... Actually, I had a rather accelerated program. So when I got out of uh, residency, I was only 26. I um, had a three-year medical school because it was year-round. There was no summers. And then family practice residency in Canada is only two years instead of the three down here. So I was a little younger than most folks when I got out of school. And mm -hmm. I was pretty sick of the winters, honestly. And um, I know you're up in, in you know, Minnesota. Um, so you, you know what I mean, mm. but, um, I, I was like, I want to go somewhere warm and Hawaii was actually first on my list. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, nice. yeah, shoot, shoot for the, shoot for the moon. Right. Um, and they didn't want to have anything to do with me. So, um, I did put out my application to Southern California and one time around Christmas before on the year I was graduating, um, well, you know, six months before graduation, I got a call from from a clinic here in San Diego County. And uh, I didn't recognize the name of, this, of the town, you know, Escondido. Um, I had to look it up on, the, on an actual paper map because this was way before Google. And I saw where it was compared to San Diego. And I mean, it is San Diego County. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is where I want to go. So they brought me down for an interview in May. And, um, and I have been at that clinic ever since. So yeah, I really, I came down in the fall after graduating from residency. And so you've been here ever since. So yeah. I guess, um, 
I'm curious to know what are, what are your thoughts on having experience in both, you know, doing your residency and um, having, having gone through medical school in Canada and living in that system, uh, whereas working here for the last quite a few years, what, how would you think about the difference of the two? Yeah. Um, I, I, I feel like I took some flack from my, um, my medical school colleagues because I did leave um, only a small handful of our classes in the U S at this point. And, you know, I had my reasons, you know, there were personal reasons, um, you know, related to my husband at the time related to the weather, um, the potential for income. Um, but another big thing was the, the system. And I was frustrated as a resident when someone needed to have an elective knee replacement and it took two years, Yeah, it took two years to get the MRI or a year to get the MRI and then another year and a half to get the surgery or a patient who needed a dermatology or a rheumatology consult that took six to eight months to get an appointment for a consult. And I felt, I mean, I was in Saskatchewan, which is a, it's a fairly low populated area, but um, I was frustrated. I knew that there were issues like that, even in the larger centers. And while I know that the American system is so far from perfect and the inequities really bother me, you know, when someone doesn't have insurance, you know, just, uh, I really, I can't stand that. I hate charging cash, you know? So, um, but overall the care in the U S is for the folks who have employer-based health insurance, it's superior in my mind. It's mm. faster, you know, it's good quality. Um, yeah, I know it's expensive and all that, but from the point of view of a physician providing care, I feel like I can provide good care. Here, here in Minnesota, there's, there's kind of a little joke that, you know, you go to Canada to get your, your meds and then mm-hmm. you, you get your medical care here in the U S. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm pretty sure there's other like Canadian folks who come down here to get their, you yeah. know, their surgeries and stuff like that. There's they, I mean, I have been gone for 20 years, so I really can't comment on the current state, but um, I know that they have developed more of a two tiered system where you can pay a little bit extra to get that MRI quicker. Oh, interesting. Huh. Well, um, I'd love to, to shift a little bit to now you're practicing and I know something you are very passionate about is real estate. As a matter of fact, I know you have a new book that mm-hmm. has come out here a couple of months ago on, on real estate and investing. And so tell us a little bit about, um, you mentioned you had some, some debt that you had accumulated over medical school uh, mm-hmm. because of the credit line. At what point did you get into real estate investing? So when I first moved down here, um, I, I had $100,000 in that credit line and some student loans. So it wasn't a huge amount, really. Um, I know a lot of people who, are, who have a lot more than that. Um, but at the time, the dollar in the U.S. was quite strong. And so it converted to $60,000 U.S. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I started paying that down diligently and um, bought a house uh, the year after I moved down here. I knew I wanted to stay and um, bought a single family home. And that was in 2003, 2004. Um, After about five years of paying down my student loan though, the dollar had progressively weakened over that time. And so my debt was still $60,000. It hadn't even even changed. (laughs) Oh man, that sucks. I know. And I hadn't really been paying that close attention. You know, I'm just, I'm just paying it off. But when you converted it to Canadian, it was like, Oh my gosh, this is not fair. So, um, I, I did in 2008, 
on the advice of a financial advisor, I actually took money out of my 401k and just wiped it out. I just took care of it sure. because it just it just wasn't budging and who knew what was gonna happen with the dollar. So um, I did have my student loan uh, debt paid off by 2008. So that was about six years into practice. Um, in terms of the real estate investing, I, uh, I owned my own home, but that was it. But then in 2008, um, well, let me back up. In 2007, um, I w went through a divorce and we had decided that um, I would keep the house and he would keep the 401k. It's kind of an even, you know, mm. switch. And this was in early 2007. And we were final, I think, uh, October 1st. And uh, I'm celebrating, I'm divorced. And then I checked the house values. I had heard a little bit about them going down and realized that the asset that I got was literally, um, you know, worth half. So mm -hmm. um, by early 2008, I was completely underwater because I, like a lot of other folks, had kind of used my house as an ATM. You know, I had refinanced it a couple of times. And um, so it was, um, it had gone from like, oh, it's worth 550 to it's worth like 275. So um, it was a bad situation. I um, moved out of that home and I became an, uh, basically an accidental landlord because I really couldn't sell it. And the rent was not enough to cover the mortgage and the, the, the taxes by about a thousand dollars a month. So I thought, I'll just stick it out, you know, we'll see what this turns around is. But as everybody knows, it took a long time for the prices to rebound and they kept going down, you know, 2009, 2010, sure. those were the lower years. And, um, but at the same time, I got some advice from a realtor who said, you know, um, Riverside County is going to boom and you should buy something in that area if you can. And I had some extra money. So I did purchase a single family home in Marietta, which is in Riverside County, just north of here. And I got a short sale on a nice giant house, you know, for 225 K and then it continued to go down in price as well. So I kind of got discouraged and really just put some tenants in there and sort of um, just let it be. Um, so that was the beginning of my real estate career. Um, I, by 2012, realized that that uh, accidental house was just not going to work for me and I needed to stop feeding it. And I ended up doing a, just a short sale on it, uh, which was unfortunate to, to, to just offload it. Um, it, it maybe has recovered as of like two or three years ago, but in the long run, it was a good idea to get rid of it. it took that um, long. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It took ages. I mean, we're inland. We're not in the, you know, urban part of San Diego. So it takes a long time for the inland properties. So, um, but the, the, the house up in Riverside started to do really well. And by the time I noticed how well it was doing, it was too late to buy more. And, um, I had been busy, I got married again, I had a child, I was busy with my practice, I wasn't paying too much attention to investing. And looking back, it would have been a great idea to buy a handful of houses up there. Well, um, let me but, let me let me stop you for a second. So yeah. so you buy the house, you're you're renting it, the one mm -hmm. in Riverside. Mm -hmm. And and so were you hiring a property management company? Were you kind of doing it yourself a little bit on the side? Tell me more about that. Yeah, it was literally uh, just me and uh, and one house. So I didn't need a property manager. It's 30 minutes from here. Uh, my husband takes care of any issues that might come up, you know, maintenance wise. So, yeah. Got it. So mm -hmm. if you could do it all over again, you would have bought a dozen of them. Oh, Should... absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Looking back. And so <laughs> um, about... Five years ago, I was like, oh man, that house is doing really well. Um, but 
you know, then I forgot about it for a while. And so, you know, two years ago, I'm like, no, really, this house is doing very well. I should do more of this. And by then, the numbers were already too high in California to purchase anything. And that started my quest for investing in real estate in a different way. So, um, you know, I, I can um, get pretty obsessed with something. And when I set my mind to it, I'm going to make it work. And um, I would come up with barrier after barrier for how can I invest in real estate the traditional way in single family homes or condos or whatever. Um, it just wasn't happening here. I went on bigger pockets, did a lot of reading, read everything I could get my hands on about real estate investing and just couldn't find a way. I started going to meetups locally and um, started hearing out of state investing from other investors. So uh, looked into that turnkey type, you know, stuff, but didn't feel comfortable with having my name on a property that was all mine and was states away that I had to get on a plane to go to because, um, did I lose you again? No, I'm still here. Okay, sorry. Um, so I was um, concerned that, you know, the risk would be too much, especially uh, if it's one house with one tenant and the water heater goes out, it needs a new roof, then there goes my profits for two years, right? Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. didn't feel comfortable with that. I'm pretty conservative. And then I started learning about syndication or hearing the word, um, especially in circles with doctors. And I was like, what is this? And <laughs> did some research. Uh, okay, it's not Seinfeld reruns. It's something to do with real estate. <laughs> and um, I, I was like, spoke with a few people who were um, able to provide information about their, their deals. And I said, um, when I learned the, the percentages that you could earn, approximately the equity multiple and the structure of it, I was amazed and I thought this is way too good to be true. There's no way that this is accurate. It must be a scam. So mm -hmm. I did my due diligence. Um, I decided to invest in a property in Dallas and flew out there, met the operator, met um, the, uh, the property manager. And, um, and I said, wow, this is for real. Let's do it. So I put some money into that, um, that deal a couple of years ago and then have been doing it ever since. I took as much money as I could out of my 401k through rollover and have been investing uh, my extra capital into a lot of syndications at this point. So, so, so tell me, tell me why um, you would do syndications. Repeat that again for everybody, rather than owning properties outright yourself. Well, it's the risk, and so um, being a limited partner of a fractional share of a property has so many benefits that I had no idea existed. So when you own a fractional share of a building, of a, say an apartment building that has, you know, a hundred other owners, um, you don't have any say in how they renovate the building or what they do to it. But at the same time, you don't have any responsibility. And if something goes terribly wrong with the building, um, you don't have any extra money that you need to put into it. You know, your name is not on the mortgage or anything like that. So I liked that aspect of it, that, um, that it was limited in its risk. And at the same time, you flip the coin and you've got the um, benefits of real estate flowing through. So the tax deduction, you know, the, the K-1 with the negative um, income on it that I could use against other passive income that I might have. So um, the benefits of the depreciation of the appreciation of the asset and, and all those things. And especially when I learned a little more about commercial real estate and how its valuation is not dependent on the comp the you know comparables of the local area but rather on how much you increase the income and so i found a couple of operators that i liked and um, invested in different asset classes to 
you know, not just uh, apartments, but also some mobile home parks and some self-storage as well. So let's, um, let's break this down just a, a little bit, a little bit further. Um, here's how I think about this, Vanessa, and I, I'm curious to get your, your feedback on my impression. So the, the pros, in my opinion, of syndications would be you get to combine your money with other people. So stuff that would be hard to buy on your own, you mm-hmm. can do. Number two, it doesn't take a lot of your time because uh, someone else is is running it. Mm-hmm. Those And then obviously you, you can have potentially very high returns um, with with those investments. On the other hand, um, you do have the, the risk, of course, you could lose everything. Mm-hmm. So depending upon how, how they structure the deal, you're really at the mercy of the person running this, which I guess is, is the, the major cons to me in that you really don't have much in the way of a say in terms of what happens mm-hmm. with the assets, nor, mm-hmm. um, and you're trusting someone at the end of the day, mm-hmm. which to me, uh, of course, I think of Ponzi schemes and mm-hmm. stuff like that, right. that, that can come up with these things and people can lose all their money mm-hmm. and never see another another scent uh, as watching lost with my, my oldest daughter uh, going back. And, and as a matter of fact, last night we watched an episode where Sawyer went and, and scammed a guy out of a whole bunch of money thinking he was um, investing oh. in, in oil wells yeah. in his past. And um, so that those are, those are kind of in my mind, pros and cons. I would love to mm-hmm. have you add to that or, or take mm-hmm. away from that, you know, whatever your, your general thoughts are in terms of. Yeah, absolutely. Because the, it's a, it's two sides of the same coin. You don't have any control, but at the same time, do you want the control? Right. So, um, I mean, most doctors that I know don't know too much about operating a multifamily apartment building. So, you know, they shouldn't be in control in that situation. Um, there was the occasional folks who, you know, are, are good at real estate and want to be hands-on and they, they have that aptitude and that's great. But for most of us, really what it comes down to is reducing the amount of time that you're working for money. So we all are in, um, you know, professions where we do a service and we get paid for it. Um, but I have to do that service. Um, if I go on vacation, nobody's going to see my patients for me um, and me get paid. So, you know, that's, that's the one big problem that I saw. Um, and I realized that a couple of years ago while I was on vacation with my family in Minnesota that, um, that it was so beautiful. We were riding our bikes around Lake Minnetonka and it was so just peaceful and um, idyllic. And I was like, wow, I feel really happy right now. I want to recreate more of that. And mm. realizing that being away from my family all the time, working hard to bring in the money, it's important, but being with my family is almost more important. And so how can I take this money that I'm earning, and I'm earning more than I need, and taking this extra money and turning it into a money-making machine for me, where I'm not adding extra hours to that. So that's the key for me, is it needs to be passive, it needs to be limited. So limited in terms of risk and limited in terms of time needed to, for that money to make money. Well, I think th- those are all wonderful, awesome things to be shooting for. And I'd love to know as, as um, you are evaluating an operator, because cer- certainly that's the main person who you have to figure out, you know, is this a good or bad deal? And, and it all comes back to, to them. How, how mm-hmm. do you think about what are two or three hints 
that you would say has served you well in evaluating sure. one operator versus another? Yeah, and if you get into the world of syndication, whereas um, you know before you may never have heard the word, once you start investigating, there's a whole bunch of syndicators out there, and a lot of them are one of these syndicators. So, I mean, I you know people talk about the three T's of tenants, termites, and toilets. That's <laughs> act, that's active landlording, right? Yeah, you deal with that kind of stuff. Um, but in terms of being a limited partner in a syndication, you want to think about um, the team. Um, and the team's track record and the trust. So those are like the three T's of like being a passive syndicator investor. So um, you have to pick um, an operator that you trust and that has a good team and has a good track record. So when I first got into this, I actually did a criminal background check on everybody involved and, nice. you know, wanted to know like, yeah, cause yeah, I'm concerned if I'm going to plump down 50 K, I don't want it to just disappear obviously, uh, into some Ponzi scheme or some guy who's going to just take it and go off to the Caymans or something like that. So um, once I did a criminal background check, met them face to face, stood in the property, like, okay, this is a real building. These are real people. got a gut check, you know, um, use my intuition a little bit. Um, then that operator, okay, great. And then look back at what they've done in the past and what have their, um, you know, experiences been. And also, just the feeling that you get when you hear them talk. Um, so I really like to listen to the recorded webinars that they do for each deal, just to hear them, hear them, hear their voices, hear them talk about the deal. And then also, what is their thought leadership platform? So you know, most people out there have a reputation now online, um, and sure. even even doing a quick web search like you know X syndicator, um, SEC, um, you know anything you know you don't want to find anything on that kind of a search but you can dig deeper if you want to but if someone has an online reputation um, multifamily especially is a pretty small world and if you do something that's shady or if you're a bad actor in any way um, you won't have much of a chance in this business so i tend to avoid the people who reach out to me like hey i've got this deal if i don't know them if they weren't referred to me by somebody there needs to be some kind of connection I love it. I think those were all wonderful, wonderful hints. And um, as as we start to wrap up this podcast, out of respect for for your time, um, would would love to have you tell us about the book that you wrote recently. And what's the book about? And and where can we find it? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's it's called the Busy um, Professional's Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. And um, I really I wrote it because as I became passionate about. Uh, syndications and investing, I realized that so many of my doctor friends had no idea. We just go about our day, we, we work super hard, we see patients, we care for them, we want to do what's best. But that, at the same time, at the end of the day, um, we want to be with our families and relax. And for a lot of us, looking into investments is not really uh, what we enjoy doing in our spare time. So we do what we're told. Um, a lot of medicine uh, learning is, you know, you need to be a good learner. You need to read yep. about anatomy. You need to be told how to do surgeries and be told how to handle this and that. Um, we're not thinking out of the box when we treat patients. And so that's kind of our, our go-to, you know, method of things. And so we don't necessarily think out of the box when it comes to investing. Um, a lot of folks are very conservative and the financial advisor has steered them in the path of what most financial advisors do, you know, which is towards, you know, paper assets, um, stock market and such, uh, your 401k. And, you know, I 
I just felt the need to try and get a short book out there that was a quick, easy read that would just be a good primer on syndication. And just not, not just syndications, but also just the idea of, hey, make your money work for you. And make it be real money, not just this ephemeral stock market money. You know, because as we all saw in the last month here, uh, what you had in your bank account, quote unquote, you know, um, has 25% of it is gone right now. If um, if you're in all stocks, it's hard to maintain your your stock uh, portfolio when the market is crashing. So it's not real money until you take it out. So uh, I would rather have that money now in terms of distributions and dividends from real estate so I can reinvest it on my own. And I feel that that gives me more control than just being um, at the whims of the stock market. Well, beautiful sentiments. And I'm sure there are many of us who, who do agree with that. And um, I would love to know with, with going back to what we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast with coronavirus, COVID-19 going on, um, I'm telling a lot of people that I think this is a once in a decade opportunity that we have in front of us to acquire all sorts of assets. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that. Um, is, is this potentially an opportunity to, to do that? Um, you look at things like commercial real estate and there's gonna be a ton of people hurting. It all mm -hmm. depends on how long this lasts. If it's just mm -hmm. another month, it probably won't, won't be too mm -hmm. bad. But if this lasts, three mm -hmm. months or six months or nine months or a year, mm -hmm. we could have a lot of buildings where tenants are not paying. We could have a lot of, of um, apartments where people haven't been able to pay rent and they're behind. And therefore the person that currently owns it is under a lot of stress and mm -hmm. might be looking to fire sale stuff. Um, mm -hmm. um, or we look at obviously more paper assets you're talking about. They are down a lot, which is always want to buy low, right? So mm -hmm. whether it's one asset or the other, I, I personally think this is a, a once in a decade opportunity that we potentially have in front of us. I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, what, what we all think about is, okay, what have I got right now? What am I holding right now? And how is it going to perform? So, you know, I'm looking at the stock market, I'm looking at my current real estate portfolio, and, you know, hopefully the syndications that I'm in have enough of a buffer that they can weather the storm, um, you know, and not have to get out of a, of a deal. Um, going forward, I totally agree. Uh, I think the real estate market will be going on sale I don't think it will occur for 12 to 18 months because it always lags behind um, behind the paper assets. But the places where you haven't been able to afford before, absolutely. So cash is king. I'm, I'm kind of shoring up my cash right now and waiting to see what happens. What's on sale? Um, most people aren't buying real estate right now. We want to see what happens. Like you said, Dave, if it only lasts for two months, it'll probably bounce back pretty fast and maybe the, um, the effect on uh, real estate will be minimal. But um, I, if I'm thinking if it goes another six months or so, then you're right, there's gonna be a lot of distressed people. And office buildings in particular, which I am not invested in, um, might really be hurting longer term, simply because everybody knows now that they can work from home. And em employers might say, hey, this is, this is great. I don't need to pay as much rent. Employees are happy working at home. We've all embraced the technology. And so it could be a long-term shift in terms of office buildings and how can they be repurposed into something more useful you know whether that's more of a shared workspace 
um, where people can just go and rent a space for a meeting or you know things like that. So yeah, I'm really trying to keep an eye on is, and listen to as many podcasts and webinars as I can to find out what might be uh, going on in the market. But just yeah, we won't know for at least six months, I think. So. Um, and oh, I didn't mention too, my, my book is available on Amazon. And um, you can also check out my website um, at vmdinvesting.com. There's uh, a link where you can get the first three chapters. So, Love it. Well, of course, when this comes out in June, we'll have a couple more months behind us to, yes. to see, see where we're at at that time. Um, and, and as we, we exit the podcast, Vanessa, I'd love to know, uh, what does financial freedom mean to you? Financial freedom means that I have the freedom to spend my time the way that is important to me without worrying about my expenses or my money. I love it. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom you want to pass on to us? I would, I would say that uh, this is a crisis that we're in right now. And like you said, when this comes out in a few months, maybe it will have passed. Maybe it'll be worse. I don't know. But I would encourage everybody to take uh, this crisis and turn it into an opportunity and don't waste the crisis because whenever there's a crisis, there's, uh, there's a silver lining in there somewhere. And I would encourage folks to be uh, reflective on what are their priorities in life, what's really truly important and getting shaken up like this um, and being forced to be at home and not go out and be busy, busy, busy all the time. Maybe, uh, it's a good time to think about what our lives could be like if we didn't have that constant crush of productivity and needs and what it might be like to maybe not be consuming quite so much, uh, whether it's stuff, shopping, restaurants, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, maybe a simpler life is something that you could um, be financially free quicker if we embrace that. I love it. Wonderful thoughts. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for being with us and spending time on the podcast today. And, and uh, I'll just say we had a little bit of technical difficulties and she was kind enough to be patient. So thank you so much, Vanessa. Absolutely. It was wonderful. Appreciate it. All right, my friends, well, that wraps up another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Make sure to check out all of the show notes with links to the various resources Vanessa was talking about. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me. If you have a story you want to share about your journey, would love to have you on the podcast. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Denniston. Remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle.